0: around the year 270 A.D., Anthony the Great went out into the desert. Uh, he went out into the deserts of Egypt to lead a monastic, ascetical life. Uh, so for 15 years, he, he kind of was discipled by this kind of you know, superior m- monk or ascetic, monastic, and he, he followed his teacher's example. And then for 20 years... Beyond that, so 15 plus 20, he had total isolation. Uh, he went further into the desert, and he actually had kind of visitors would throw him food over a wall. Uh, he was in this kind of broken down, abandoned structure. And so he didn't see anyone for 20 years. By the end of 20 years, uh, there were enough people clamoring to, to follow his example and to, to be like him that he ended up starting a community of monastics and hermits, Uh, He lived on bread, salt, and water during these 35 plus years. He never had wine or meat, and he ate at most once a day. Was Anthony a monastic hero, showing the value of detachment from the world and its possessions? Or is he misguided? Should you today in 2023 seek to follow his example, his discipline and severity? Is that what faithfulness to Christ looks like to achieve achieve true spirituality and a relationship with God? Are these the steps that you need to take this morning? To answer questions like these, that we'll be turning to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. So let me encourage you to, to flip there now, if you haven't already. We're just kind of walking through the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians was written around 60 AD. Paul was in a Roman prison, and Colossae is in Asia Minor, what's today modern-day Turkey. Uh, Paul had not founded the church in Colossae. Rather, that was Epaphras. And so Epaphras had traveled from Turkey all the way to Rome to give a report to Paul on how things were going. And, you know, Paul was encouraged by the faith and hope and love that the congregation displayed. But he was also concerned because they had begun to accept this this false teaching which said that the Colossian Christians needed to have spiritual knowledge and spiritual practices regarding these angelic beings these spiritual forces and powers in the heavenly places if they were to be complete uh, you see the colossian christians were being told that they needed to do more to be right with god and to have true spirituality and so paul's writing to basically lift up in the book of colossians the supremacy of christ so that he is sufficient and to show that they don't need to move beyond christ but go deeper in Him. That's kind of where we've been so far in the book of Colossians. And so this morning we'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Because you are full in Christ, don't submit to man-made religion. Because you are full in Christ, don't submit to man-made religion. So look with me at Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 16 and 17, entitled, Shadows to Reality. In, in this passage, 16 to 23, it's the most explicit in the book of Colossians, where we kind of get an up-close zoom in on what the false teachers were teaching. And so here in verses 16 and 17, we see that Paul is specifically counteracting Jewish false teaching, uh, which sought to promote the necessity of the Colossian Christians to obey the Old Testament law. We know that because of verse 16, right? It says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regards to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. You see, many religions in the world have regulations regarding festivals and food and drink, but only Judaism had the Sabbath. Sabbath. The command to one out of seven days, the last day of the week, to set it aside and rest the Jews in God. And so we see here that that Paul is specifically concerned that the Colossians not fall prey to, to those insisting upon obedience to the Old Testament law. But don't miss the first word of our passage. Because it is the basis for him saying, don't let anyone pass judgment. That first word, of course, is therefore. And anytime you're reading your Bible and you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask, What's the therefore? Therefore. Therefore. Thank you very much. What's it doing there? What is it teaching me about this passage? And so here we see that that our passage today is is kind of the, the conclusion, the practical application for verses 8 to 15, which Paul gave us last week. So. In verse 8, for example, Paul had said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, he's basically going to pick up that idea of verse 8 in our passage. But before we don't just go verse 8 to 16 because the rest of that passage, right? Beginning verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Verses 9 to 15 are basically showing, again, like, don't fall prey about these other philosophies because look how great Jesus is. Don't fall prey to these other speculations because look how full Christ is and the fact that you are filled in him. You've had your sin debt canceled through Christ's death on the cross. You've been buried with him. You've been raised from the spiritual dead. You have new life. You lack nothing. You are full in Christ. You have VIP access to heaven. Not because of your works, but because of Christ. And so therefore, verse 16, therefore, don't let anyone judge you. You're not lacking anything. Christ has done Everything necessary. And the only thing that you've got to do is put your faith in Christ as evidenced by baptism, and you are full. So, why are you even entertaining these Colossian false teachers? It'd be as if you had a backstage pass to the Taylor Swift concerts that are going on this weekend at Gillette Stadium. And then someone comes bragging to you about how they have these general admission tickets. And it's really great. You get to park really far away, and you get to walk a really long time, and there are these huge crowds, and it's really sweaty and crowded, and people are going to spill beer on your shoes, and it's just going to be a complete nightmare getting out. You're going to be in your car for four hours trying to get home on Route 1. And you're just like, well, no, I have a special entrance. I I don't have to sit in that traffic. I I actually have front row seats. I'm actually going to dinner with T-Swift after the show. Like, why would you entertain what they are saying? They don't have anything that you are lacking. So it is for us. Don't let anyone judge you or imply that your faith, that your acceptance before the Lord is lacking. Because, here's what's so subtle. To imply that you, Christian, are lacking is to imply that Christ is lacking isn't it? It's to say that Jesus has not done enough to qualify you with the Father. Because you got to add on your asceticism and these, you know, worship of angels and all these other things to make yourself right with God. By stating that the Colossians were not full, they were implying that Christ was not sufficient. And beloved, that is not the case. These Colossian false teachers, they wanted the uh, Colossians to observe the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws and the religious calendar. So the food laws would have th- been things like don't eat pork uh, or bacon or shrimp or fried clams. And so we praise God that those laws have been repealed. <laughs> Amen. Uh, many Jews didn't drink with pagans as well. And the, the festivals and new moon and the Sabbaths, again, it all refers to the, the Jewish calendar and why, I mean, if the Old Testament is God's word, why don't the Colossian Christians have to worry about keeping those commands? Well, what does Paul say? He says in verse 17, because they are a shadow of what was to come. I think it's a better translation of that last little phrase. They're a shadow of what was to come. But now that reality, the substance, has come. The word for substance there in the ESV, it's uh, literally it's the word body. Okay, so literally the body belongs to Christ. The the imagery that Paul is using is that a person, right, like a literal physical person with a body, casts a shadow. So you can imagine, uh, you know, Christmas time, you're waiting for one of your children to come home for the Christmas holidays or another relative, and uh, you can't wait for this person to show up at your door, and, and you see, you know, a shadow coming near the door, and you're excited. Th- this is the person you'd been waiting for. You love them, this aunt or uncle or child or parent or, or friend, whatever it is. The, the shadow approaches the door. You would never say, okay, stop there. I, I'm, man, I'm so glad you flew from Chicago to Boston. Man, you have a great shadow. I am content to live with this. No, no, you want the person, right? You want the body. You want them. And you would never, if they show up, you never send them back and say, well, no, I really prefer your shadow over your person. You don't stop at the shadow, but the body is the real thing that you want. Or it'd be as if also you went to a restaurant. You sit down, they give you the menu, and uh, you order your food. And they take away the menus and they, they bring out the food. And you're like, no, no, I, I really don't want the, the food. I just want the menu. You see like those nice pictures of the chicken tiki masala? Yeah, that's what I want, that, that menu. Guys, the menu exists for the meal. The shadow points to the substance. And so Christ is the substance, is the fulfillment of these Old Testament laws and institutions and patterns. Okay, so let me, let me just kind of, let's drill in on this real quick. Um, when you read your Old Testament, it is not first and foremost about you, it's about Christ. He is the one that your Old Testament is pointing you to and, and talking about, okay? And so as Christians, therefore, as we do approach the Old Testament, uh, which Paul, you know, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching and reproving and rebuke and training in righteousness. So it's not like we throw our Old Testament out because it's about Christ. No, we, we study it all the more. How do we think about what commands we, we keep and don't keep? Right? Because if the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, you have like one option well, we don't need to keep any of the, the commands of the Old Testament. And the other is like, no, we got to keep all of them. And as long as you, once you throw out those two options, which I think, I think you should, uh, you're left with, well, what, what, do, what do we keep? What, what do we abide by? Uh, sometimes people have come up with what's known as the tripartite division of the law, uh, which divides the law into the moral, civil, and ceremonial parts, uh, commands. Let me, suggest, let me just say, as a rule of thumb, that, that might be a helpful way as you approach your Old Testament to know what, what commands apply to you and live to you today. As believers, we are not under the Mosaic law. We are under the law of Christ, okay? But what does it mean to live out the law of Christ? The Old Testament law gives us wisdom in knowing how to love our neighbor as ourself, which is what the law of love, the law of Christ is. So when you look at your, your Old Testament and you see dietary restrictions and religious calendars, make sure that you understand how these point first to Christ And then it's wisdom on how we live, how we as God's people abide by his commands. What does it mean for the festivals to be fulfilled in Christ? Uh, This might be um, something to talk about maybe over dinner tonight after the evening service. But in short, the Sabbath, you can read about these in Leviticus 23. How does the Sabbath point forward to and be fulfilled in Christ? You think about how the Sabbath commanded the Israelites to rest from their works and trust in God's provision. Well, in Christ, we rest from our works and we trust in God's provision of righteousness through Christ. Leviticus 23.5 tells about Passover, the feast of Passover. And of course, Jesus is our Passover lamb under whose shed blood we hide from the destroyer. Jesus fulfills the feast of unleavened bread in Leviticus 23.6. Because Jesus' life was free from the leaven, the influence of sin. Uh, Jesus fulfills the feast of firstfruits because Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, the first resurrection, which we also wait. The feast of weeks or Pentecost finds its celebration in Jesus. It finds its fulfillment and substance in Christ. Because it was a, a celebration of the harvest you know, that had come in. And that's what happens in Acts 2. The harvest of souls from people from all over the Mediterranean region. That, that feast of Pentecost or weeks is fulfilled in Christ. The feast of trumpets point forward to the, pointed forward to the trumpets that will announce Christ's second coming, his return. The day of atonement is fulfilled in Christ as Jesus is the sacrificial lamb slain for us, bearing our judgment and sin so that our sins could be carried far away. And then finally, the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles, Well, of course, that's fulfilled as Christ tabernacled among us. Jesus dwelt among us, not just in a tent, but God took on human form. So brothers and sisters, even when you read books like Leviticus, read it because it's about Christ. That's what Paul would have us understand about the dietary laws and the Sabbath, why these Colossian Christians should not let anyone pass judgment on them in these matters. Let's turn to our second point in verses 18 and 19, entitled, Christ Gives the Growth. Paul begins in a similar way, let no one disqualify you. The image is of an ump or a referee uh, literally disqualifying someone, perhaps from an athletic competition, uh, saying who gets the prize and who doesn't. Paul specifically doesn't want these Colossian Christians to be judged by someone who has no authority. Authority to judge them, right? These Colossian Christians were acting like they were the umpire, they were the referee of the Christian life when really they had no authority in that. Jesus had that authority. Uh, you know, we, we like to talk about referees for the, the Celtics and how they're completely blowing the series, and it's all the referees' fault. Um, what Paul is basically telling the Colossian Christians is like, you know, some fan is out in the stands saying, like, that's a foul. Like, stop listening to him. That fan has no bearing on if you're actually disqualified. Listen to the true referee, which is Jesus, and he has qualified you. Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is denying bodily pleasures, saying no to, to common good experiences, which the Lord has given to us as human beings. These false teachers as well were insisting on the worship of angels. You know, angels were glorious beings uh, in, in the sense that they were terrifying and they were majestic and God had given them this impressive appearance. So every time in the Old and New Testaments, when you see humans interact with angels, they get like laid out by them, right? Because they're impressive. And yet... They're not to be worshipped. These people were going on and on, these false teachers, about this special revelation. And it seems that because of these visions, they were puffed up without reason uh, by his sensuous mind. Literally, his fleshly mind. Fleshly referring to um, being dominated by sin and its influences and its priorities. Um, The fleshly mind doesn't live for God and his glory, but self and self-exaltation. And so, beloved... You know, don't give in to false teachers who insist that they've had a private religious experience that you need to pay attention to. Do you notice how, how uh, in the book of Acts, Paul actually says, you know, Jesus was raised from the dead and it wasn't done in a corner. The, the point is, they're just, I mean, like, go on Wikipedia, you could spend all day on Wikipedia looking up crazy people who say they're messengers from God. They're even Christians, they say. And they've got the special word for the church or whatever. Beloved, do not pay attention to those people. God has given us everything we need in His Word and His Son uh, through the apostles. We don't need to be paying attention to, to what supposedly people see. And I will even say, people like Joseph Smith and Muhammad and others who claim to have you know, kind of religious, supernatural experiences. It's very possible they they do see angelic beings. They're just not angels of light. They're angels of darkness. Because you remember in Galatians 1, Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, let him be accursed. So it's not at all, it would not at all be surprising if there really are angelic beings trying to communicate with people to distort the gospel, Uh, Paul here wants to remind the Colossians that they should not be disqualified and be paying attention to these false teachers. Because growth in the Christian life and standing before God, it doesn't come from these unique revelations, but verse 19, well, it says, they are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Again, you know, you could summarize these false teachers, their problem is that they weren't holding fast to Christ. I think the implication is at one point they were. These false teachers are not completely outside of the body. They are in the church. They are probably claiming to hold fast to the head. At one time they were holding fast to the head who is Christ, but not anymore. They've lost hold of the main thing. And in contrast to that, the Colossians should pay attention, close attention to the head. Because of course, all growth comes from the head. The head gives the body directions and orders telling what to do. The whole body is nourished by the head. It grows from the head. Uh, You you notice those, those two attributes, those two traits that Paul lists. The whole body nourished, and knit together. Uh, the body is nourished. Uh, that is, it refers to spiritual growth and Christ-likeness. That the head uh, is the goal and the source of our growth. Okay, so you see that the source here in verse 19, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body is nourished, right? So the body is nourished by the head. But the, the head is also the source. Ephesians 4:15 says, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So Christ is the source of our growth and he's the goal of our growth. And then Paul says as well that the body is knit together. The whole body is knit together from the head. This refers to the unity in the church. We don't grow, we aren't nourished independently of one another. Uh, But beloved, we are interdependent. You know, it would be bad, it would be weird, it would be problematic if a body started to grow, you know, one part of the body, but not the other parts. You can imagine, like, the arm grows really big, but you have this little baby hand. That would not be good for the body. Or you you can imagine that the feet grow really big, and you get these little flipper feet, But, but the rest of the body doesn't grow proportionally. The body is meant to grow together. The body is meant to be nourished together because it's all from the head. The head is the one supplying the nourishing and the knitting together. And I wonder if you notice how Paul says it's nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. It's not just these bigger, more prominent members that do the work. Paul mentions the smallest And most seemingly insignificant features to show how they were crucial to the body. So beloved, are you growing in Christ's likeness? Are you being nourished in his character and in his word and in relationship with God and into his image? Individually, are you growing? But also know that you cannot grow apart from other Christians. You know, it's not good for you to be a member apart from the body. It's not good for you to be boasting in or, or even rejoicing in that you are growing. If others aren't growing with you, you need them and the other members' insights and prayers and challenges and afflictions, their experiences and love. It's not good for them. It's not good for you. Uh, you need their insights and experiences. They need your gifts and strengths and weaknesses and trials and prayers because that's the way God has designed the body to work. Uh, so Christian, I think we can, we can probably generally always come up with, with reasons or maybe even excuses why we can't help other Christians, why we can't grow and help others grow. Maybe because a sin that we're struggling with Or some inexperience that we think, or lack of knowledge, or we're new to the church, or we're new to the area, or I've just gotten married, or we've just had a baby, or we've just had our fourth baby, or you know whatever it is. I think we can we can always we always have reasons why we don't get about this work. Uh, But beloved, don't view yourself as too insignificant to help the body grow, because remember the growth does not ultimately come from you; it's from the head through the joints and ligaments. So it's just Christ's power working through you. Uh, so just you know, just maybe a good verse to meditate on this afternoon. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So if you are a joint or ligament, if you are a Christian who's been united to the head, who are you this week going to help stir them up? to love and good works. Uh, if you're married, that's a great place to start. If you have Christian roommates, that's a great place to start. But who in the body are you helping to grow? How, how are you considering how to stir them up? How are you plotting and scheming prayerfully and happily for their growth in Christ-likeness? And, and then, you know, maybe just a second, how, how are you helping the body be knit together? Christian, how are you helping the body be knit together? You know, of course, of course, first, don't be divisive. Don't be dividing the body with your actions or your words. Um, but there are just like, you know, all kinds of ways throughout our, our day-to-day life that we can we can pursue the unity and the knitting together of the body. Uh, we can pray for other members. We can check in on people who have not seen them in a few weeks. Uh, we can bring meals to the sick or the moving uh, we can help people who have a new baby. We can uh, spend time together, we can do play dates together, We can read the Bible together, read a book together, memorize scripture together, confess sin together. Uh, there should just be you know, as many different opportunities as we have unique schedules and, and you know, unique opportunities in our lives. We, we want to be thinking through, how can I grocery, how can I go grocery shopping for the glory of God? And maybe invite a friend and like, hey, let's go grocery shopping together. H- how can I pursue unity in the body? with my schedule and money and gifts and abilities and opportunities. The other thing I'll just say is uh, we, we've got these five teams, I think it is, here at Trinity, which are just really great ways to serve the body. Uh, there's the hospitality team, which Dan leads, allowing people to have bulletins and coffee and a nice seating area. Uh, the kids ministry, which allows parents to participate in the service, and uh, really the whole congregation without undue distraction. The music team helps us lift our voices to God in praise. Nick has been leading the sound team so that we can all literally hear the word of God. There's the meals ministry so that we can break bread together on Sunday nights and have fellowship together. Um, So brothers, if you're looking for ways like, okay, Scott, how do I, I wanna pursue nourishing and knitting the body together. How can I do that? Come talk to me or come talk to someone and say, hey, I, I wanna serve in one of these ways. I wanna help the body to grow as Christ the head works through me. And so let's turn to our final section, section number 3 and verses 20 to 23, entitled, Worldly Rules Profit Nothing. Again, we saw that God gave the growth in verse 19. We saw how the head works. It's not the false teachers and their visions that they need. And so in verse 20, now the shift is made. Uh, Not so much on the false teachers and their influence, but to the Colossian Christians themselves. And so Paul says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Uh, In this, Paul is assuming union with Christ in his death, which is what verse 11 had stated. You know, and we, we used to be under the sway, the dominion, the influence of the devil, the world, uh, Satan's host, his minions. But through Christ's death and his resurrection, our sin debt has been canceled. He's risen from the grave. So now we're no longer enslaved to Satan. As Colossians 1.13 states, right? God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has done this decisive work. You are no longer alive in Satan's world. Which is really dead in God's world. Now you are alive in God's beloved king. The kingdom of his beloved son. It's this kingdom marked by love. And harmony. And peace and unity. Not sin and wickedness and trespasses. And vainglory. And so. Verse 20, why in the world do you act as though you're still enslaved to the world? You know, why do you still live by its rules and priorities and agenda? Why do you still submit to regulations? They're human doctrines with spiritual forces behind them. That's what verses 21 and 22 state. Uh, Do not handle... Do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. You see, these are human precepts and teachings, but they have spiritual forces behind them because they occupy the domain of darkness. They are referring to, uh, they're involved with these elemental spirits, right? You've died to these elemental spirits, which are the spiritual forces at work in the world, and yet you're somehow submitting to their teachings, You're somehow submitting to their rules. These aren't from God. These rules are mere human invention. And so in verse 23, Paul gives us his evaluation. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Literally, these have the the reputation, the appearance, uh, the reputation of wisdom. You know, Christian, if if you're going to follow Christ, you just kind of got to be okay with, there are going to be things that you love that the world thinks is foolish, like the cross. And there are going to be things that the world thinks is really wise that you're just not going to countenance. It might appear, it might have a reputation of wisdom, But we need to see through to what is really going on. These people, their their work, their teaching has the appearance of wisdom for three reasons. Number one, it's self-made religion. Uh, The point, I think, seems to be that their self-willed piety looks impressive, right? Persuaded, passionate people are themselves persuasive. These people with self-made religion, I, I think the point is something like, if somebody comes up to you on the street and they start talking about astrology and the stars and how the planets' movements are changing our courses of life, but they get really passionate about it, and they say, "Well, look, you know this, this happened and then this happened, and then I knew that this was going to happen, and this happened and this happened." And look, there are these other people who can attest that these things really happened. I mean, that's persuasive. Even if you're thinking like, okay, that's crazy. But you just begin to wonder like, huh, that's interesting. Well, these people have the reputation of wisdom from their self-made religion. Their rules and regulations, their visions of angelic beings, they looked impressive. And then also this, it has an appearance of wisdom because of their asceticism. Uh, literally, the word here, it's humility. It is literally just the word Humility their religion appears humble. And how are you going to say no to a humble person? Right? Who am I to say no to their spiritual practices, which brings so much meaning and purpose to their life? They seem so genuine and humble. And yet Paul says it's only the appearance of wisdom. The third thing, again, it's that they have severity to the body. They are dedicated, these false teachers. They aren't holding back. There's got to be some value, right? If they're going this hard for it. I mean, there's got to be something that they're sacrificing for. And yet, Paul says, the main problem is that their practices, their religion, their teaching it doesn't actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. Literally, it's of no value. You see, that's the problem with man-made religion. That's the problem with asceticism. Because our problem is our sinful flesh, our sinful nature, not our mere bodies or even our bodily behaviors. It is our sinful hearts and wicked desires which come to fruition in sinful actions. But that is precisely what asceticism and man-made religion cannot do. They cannot deal with. It can't change us from the inside out. And thus, asceticism and man-made religion makes the problem worse because it masks the true problem the source, which is our hearts. It fools you, asceticism and man-made religion, into thinking that you have conquered the flesh when you haven't actually. You've only conquered your appetite. As Jesus said in Mark 7, it is our wicked hearts that need to be changed. What are some examples of asceticism today? Uh, In years past, Baptist churches have stated things like no dancing or no pants for women. Some churches require abstinence from alcohol or from marriage. Uh, No non-Christian music is ever allowed. Uh, Some Christian ministries promote less sleep or cold showers for Christians. Um, I think one particularly prominent example, and and I don't kind of name names, I don't do this lightly, is of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and related to some of their food laws. Let me just kind of summarize what, what one archdiocese of a, of a Roman Catholic church states, this is just kind of their summary as it relates to the, their prohibitions on food and meat on Fridays. Uh, this is from an arch, archdiocese in, in Minneapolis. It, it states, up until 1966, church law prohibited meat on all Fridays throughout the entire year. A new law was promulgated in 1983 in the revised Code of Canon Law, which states, abstinence from meat is to be observed on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday. All persons who have completed their 14th year are bound by the law of abstinence. The U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops extended this law to include all Fridays in Lent. Friends, they are making it up as they go along. To say, yeah, you can't have meat on Fridays. Well, okay, now you can, just not on, on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday. And then for the U.S. Council Catholic of, uh, of the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops to say, well, in the U.S., you can't have it on any Friday in Lent. Friends, this is not teaching from God's Word, these are commandments of men, they're, they're human doctrines why is it that we are prone to asceticism and man-made religion? Like, Like why does every world religion kind of have these impulses towards asceticism and why, again, even with like Anthony the Great, why even in Christian streams has there been this, this stream of asceticism? I think it's because, I think it's because we want something that we can control. We want boxes that we can check to quantify progress. It looks impressive, right? It has the appearance of wisdom. It's a lot easier to say no to meat than it is to say no to lust or greed or grumbling or anger. It's a lot easier to say no to meat than to say no to lust or greed or anger or pride or grumbling or ingratitude or whatever it is. And so again, sadly, it masks the true culprit. Asceticism masks the, the true cancer, which is our flesh. True freedom from sin isn't found in worldly rules or ascetic severity, True freedom is having your flesh crucified with Christ and him granting you new life. The only way we can be freed from our flesh is what Paul had said in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It was through Christ's being circumcised, as it were, his death on the cross, that our flesh is cut off. That is the only power that can kill our sin. And that's why, friends, if you would know victory over your sin, you must must put your faith in Christ and his cross and in his resurrection, and you need to make that your all. And that's, if you are a Christian, that's kind of the challenge, right? The the challenge is we put our faith in Christ, but, but every day we are tempted to put our confidence in ourselves, in our actions, in our severity, in our wisdom, instead of putting it in the cross as the decisive means and moment when our flesh was defeated. This isn't because, asceticism is, is wrong. Not because the body doesn't matter. Right? So it, it's not as if the body doesn't matter and which would make no sense of of when the Bible condemns sex outside of marriage or drunkenness or gluttony or whatever it is. The point isn't that the body doesn't matter, but that morally neutral things like like eating meat or pork or drinking alcohol, uh, you shouldn't view abstaining from this morally neutral thing as if somehow you're killing sin. Uh, Asceticism is self-denial gone wrong. Because Jesus does tell us to take up our cross and, and carry it, doesn't he? But when he's saying that, he's not saying, you know, get five hours of sleep at night. The, the point, the point is that we would die to our selfish desires and our, our pride and our ego. That we would live for him. That we would love our neighbor as ourselves. So, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, in your pursuit of holiness... Don't just concern yourself with external behavior. Look at the heart, at putting the flesh to death. Don't give into pornography, not just because you have filters up, but because you have a heart that wants to be pure so you can see God. When you give, don't just give a percent to check a box, but do it because you have a generous heart who loves the Lord and what he's done for you. Don't give in to gluttony, not just because that's wrong, but because you find your comfort in Christ. Don't give in to drunkenness because you are not just, again, because drunkenness is wrong and it might ruin your life. Don't give in to drunkenness because you are filled with the Spirit and dominated by the Holy Spirit's work. Brothers and sisters, don't submit to human or worldly rules and regulations. Instead, hold fast to Christ, knowing that He and He alone is the one who saves and sanctifies us. Let's pray. Father, we we do need your son and your spirit to sanctify us. We feel our flesh and our wicked desires. And so Lord, would you help us to truly put our sin to death? Or would you help us We find our identity and our all in Christ's cross and in his resurrection. Lord, we pray that you would do the work that we cannot do, that you would grow this body up because of the head, because of Christ, that you would put our sin to death by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.